We're going to be, as you heard in Mark's reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 16 and 17, or rather 15 and 16. And we're continuing our march through the nations, so to speak. Last week, we looked at Babylon, and really we were considering also Assyria in the context of Babylon, and in all of these, we're thinking about Judah's relationship to the nations. Judah is the southern kingdom, split from the northern kingdom right after Solomon's reign. And what we're finding in Isaiah's day is that the northern kingdom, Israel, has been all but swallowed up and dominated by Assyria. And Assyria is marching into Judah toward Jerusalem, and Judah's going, oh no, what are we going to do? Who are we going to trust? What's going to happen to us? And it's into all of these questions that Isaiah is speaking oracles concerning the nations. I don't know how many of you in here, actually I do, I know every single one of you in here has thought at one point or another, if only I knew then what I know now. That's kind of the nature of wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom is knowing now what you didn't know then. When I was 25 years old, I thought I knew everything. And then 35-year-old Jeff looked back at 25-year-old Jeff and goes, that guy was an idiot. And now 45-year-old Jeff looks back at 35-year-old Jeff, not 45 yet, but I'm always, we'll just round up, looks back at 35-year-old Jeff and goes, that guy didn't know quite as much as he thought he did, and he, and he didn't even really know what he didn't know. There's decisions that need to be made about jobs and careers, about finances, decisions that we're making about who we're going to marry, whether we're going to marry, where we're going to live, all kinds of decisions that we are making all the time. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a crystal ball to stare into and go, I want to know exactly how this is going to turn out. If I choose to go this way or that way, how's this decision going to work out? If I marry that person, how's it going to work out? If I take that job, how's it going to work out? Is it going to be the job that I always hoped for? Is it going to be the job that's going to maximize my, my gifts and my talents? Is that going to be the spouse that's going to, that's going to stay with me and be faithful to me to the end? If we live in this city, will we have friends? Will we find a church? There's all kinds of decisions that we're making. We go, oh man, if only I knew exactly how everything was going to play out. Well, God in His wisdom conceals much of that from us so that we would walk according to wisdom in His Word, so that we would trust Him in the decisions that we make, that we, God is not a genie, He's not a diviner, He's not someone that we go to and look into a crystal ball for, He's someone that we need to trust. And yet there are times where God has told us exactly what we need to know about what will happen if we make certain decisions. That's exactly what we find in Isaiah 15 and 16. As Assyria is pressing into Jerusalem, Judah is asking a whole host of questions. What are we going to do? How are we going to survive? On whom can we rely and in whom should we trust? And Isaiah is coming to Judah with a vision. We saw a vision of Babylon, and now in these two chapters, a vision of Moab. Because Judah, there is a coalition forming at this time in the Fertile Crescent. You've got Philistia and Moab and other surrounding nations. Philistia is to the west of Israel. You've got Moab to the east of Judah, and they're all forming this alliance against the superpower of the day, Assyria. And they're going, hey, you need to come and join us or else you're going to get taken out too. And now Isaiah has an oracle for Judah that says, let me show you what's going to happen to Moab. And coincidentally, if you throw your lot in with them, what will likely happen to you? This is an act of God's grace to his people. To show them what will happen. You don't have to ask then, oh, what if we knew then what we know now. I'm going to tell you now what you need to know so that when you get there, what's true of Moab won't be true of you. 
And of course, there are bigger questions at stake because everything that we see happening here is pointing to bigger and greater spiritual realities in what God is doing in Christ. And we're going to explore those. But the big idea of these two chapters, which go together, this whole section, you can see each section is, is neatly wound up every time you see an oracle. You see that in 15 verse 1, an oracle. If you glance over, we'll see our next section begins in 17 verse 1, an oracle. And everything in between that is one section meant to fit together. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the big idea of this entire section is this. If you're taking notes, this is my sermon in a sentence. Pride leads to destruction. Be humble and submit to God's king. Pride leads to destruction. Be humble and submit to God's king. We're going to see four things over the course of these two chapters. First of all, we are going to see in chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, that's the whole chapter, our first point. Don't trust and substitute saviors. Don't trust and substitute saviors. But then we're going to see beginning in verse 1 through verse 5 of chapter 16, trust in God's king. Did we trust in God's king? So we see don't trust in substitute saviors. Okay, well then who are we going to trust in? Trust in God's king. Well then picking up in chapter 16, verse 6, all the way through verse 12, we'll see our third point. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Don't trust in your own wisdom, but rather, fourth point, verses 13 and 14, trust in God's Word. Trust in God's Word. So we have four points that we're looking at. Don't trust in substitute saviors, trust in God's King. Don't trust in your own wisdom, trust in God's Word. And in all of these things, we're going to see how it applies to us in Christ. We'll go back to the beginning of chapter 15. We're going to see here what's happening. We have an oracle concerning Moab. Who is Moab? Well, we see Moab first step on the scene all the way back in Genesis 19. Remember what happens in Genesis 19? Lot ends up escaping Sodom and Gomorrah. And he escapes with his daughters, and his daughters think they're the only ones alive. That when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's daughters thought... He had destroyed all of the known world. And so they look at their father and go, what's going to happen if we don't procreate? So they get them drunk and they end up having babies by their father. And the firstborn son, one of the firstborn son to Lot, his name was Moab. So the Moabites are close relatives to the Israelites. And they are a constant thorn in Israel's side. Occasionally, they have times of peace, but by and large, they're a constant thorn. And so we see this immediately after the Exodus. The God's people had been in Egypt for many years. God, in His power and grace, redeemed them from slavery to Egypt, was bringing them out into the wilderness. And when we get to Numbers chapter 21, we find that Israel has defeated the Amorites and they have settled down and set up shop in lands that formerly belonged to Moab. They were lands that the Amorite king had taken from Moab. Now Israel's there and the Moabite king, Balak, is looking at Israel and going, we don't want anything to do with these guys. And so he ends up summoning a prophet named Balaam. And he says, here's what I want you to do, Balaam. I want you to go to Israel and I want you to curse them. And the word of the Lord comes to Balaam and he goes, there ain't no way that I'm going to be able to do that. How could I curse the one that God has blessed? And so he tells the king, you can give me all the money in your, give me all the money, give me all the treasures in your treasuries, but I cannot curse these people. These are God's people. And so he ends up delivering four oracles, Balaam does, and all of them are blessing Israel and are working against the very curses that Moab wanted to curse Israel with. Well, it's because of that incident that God says in His law, Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, that the Moabites are never to come into the assembly of the Lord. And it's because immediately after the whole situation with Balaam, the king understands, okay, well, listen, if we can't get him by cursing, 
then we're going to get them another way. And so Israel sought to live in peace with Moab. They were seduced by the Moabite women, and they were seduced into idolatry and ended up worshiping Moab's God. And so because of this, Deuteronomy 23, it says, because they did not greet you with drink and with food celebrating you as coming into the land, because they sought to oppose you, they may not come into the assembly. But in Balaam's last oracle to Moab, Genesis, or rather Numbers 24, this is what he says. He says to the king of Moab, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. In other words, I'm seeing somebody far off. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know exactly what that's referring to that Jacob's son Judah was promised that a scepter would rise out of him and it would not depart, that there is going to be a king from Judah arising from Jacob, that is Israel, and it will crush the forehead of Moab. Many years later, that oracle given by Balaam to the Moabites was fulfilled by King David. 2 Samuel chapter 8, King David has come into power. He ends up defeating the Moabites, and the Bible says that the Moabites ended up becoming his servants, that they had to submit to the Davidic king, and he put them into submission. But all of that was ultimately in the past, from where we are in Isaiah 15 and 16, and it's pointing to greater spiritual realities in the future, and that's what we're going to see in our passage. There's a brief history of Moab, always a thorn in the side of Israel, and it's no different here. Well, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 15 is Moab weeping. We see that Ar of Moab is laid waste, and so is Kir. These are the major cities, the major powers. This would be like New York has been taken out, Los Angeles has been taken out from one coast to another, and everything in between is desolation. Moab is undone. And so we see in verses 2, 3, and 4, the repetition of weeping and wailing, wailing, crying out, crying aloud. And we see it happening in all of these various cities. In fact, if you scan through verse 9, we see more than a dozen cities. And if you were to trace them out on a map, what you would see is this weeping is going to the northernmost part of Moab, and it stretches all the way to the southernmost cities. It's going from the farthest west to the farthest east. These nine verses are saying there is no place in the land of Moab that is not being touched by distress and of mourning and of wailing and of weeping. The entire kingdom, without exception, is under judgment. They have been completely conquered. And so in verses 5 through 8, they are left only with one option. They've got to run. And that's what they do. Their their fugitive, verse 5, end up fleeing, and they flee to the north, to Zoar, or they flee south, rather, to Zoar. And as they go, verse 6, we notice that there is no water. The waters are a desolation. We also see, second half of verse 6, that there's no food. Everything has been completely decimated. The only things that they have in verse 7 is what they have, is what they can carry, the very things that they hold in their possessions. Many of us have seen pictures of refugees coming out of Syria or perhaps in World War II. You've got Russian or you've got other refugees that were escaping, Hitler and others, and long lines of women and children and very few men. Why? Because all the men are dead. Of women and children holding on to things. Some of you have seen that picture of the woman holding on to holding on to a painting and a lamp and just the clothes on her body. That's all she has. It's all of her earthly possessions with her. And she's taking it, and the same thing is true here. They are refugees. They have been run out of their homeland. Their kingdom has been completely overrun. And so now they are total refugees, crushed by an unnamed invading force, which I think is reasonable to say is Assyria. That Assyria has come in, and now they are on the run. But running away from it and running to it 
makes no difference because in verse 9, the waters of Dibon are full of blood. And I will bring upon Dibon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape. The idea is here that you can escape the forces of this invading army, but to escape them is just to find yourself in the, in the jaws of a lion. There is no escape. Their fate, their doom is certain. That they are out of options. They've got no military options. They've got no political options. They've got no financial options. They are completely destitute and desolate. But you got to remember that Isaiah is not preaching this oracle to Moab. He's preaching this oracle to Judah. Moab likely doesn't hear anything that Isaiah is saying, but Judah does. What is it that Judah is supposed to know concerning this oracle about Moab. What are they to take away from these first nine verses, this first half of the oracle that Isaiah is giving concerning Moab? And it's this, that you can't trust in worldly supports. Don't trust in substitute saviors. Resist trusting in worldly supports. Remember, come and join us. Be in alliance with us. Join our forces. Let's fight together against Assyria. God's saying, don't do it. Don't trust them for your safety, for your security, for your salvation. Because every worldly support unsupported by God will fail. And this is a lesson that every single one of us need to learn. Over and over and over Again, Isaiah gives them a glimpse into Moab's destiny and goes, if you throw your lot in with them, this is what's waiting for you, and that is God's grace to Judah. He's saying, don't trust in worldly supports. Don't walk according to your own wisdom. Walk instead in the fear of the Lord. This is a lesson that we need to learn as a church. How easy is it for churches, rather than trusting God's Spirit to use God's Word in God's time to do God's work in God's people, to turn instead to their own wisdom and to trust in expediency and pragmatism. We want to build it as big as we can, as fast as we can, and as long as the crowd is getting bigger, it must be true because it's working. That is pragmatism. And it is something that I fear has deceived many churches and is something that is always knocking and prowling at our own doorstep. That we want to try to build churches as big as we can and as fast as we can. What are we going to trust in to see Christ build His church? Do we build it or does God build it? Is it going to be through our slick programs? Is it going to be through our world-class music? No offense, Matt, I think you're great. Is it going to be through the dynamic personality of the pastor, well, we're somewhat shut. I'm a little socially awkward. Is it going to be through aligning ourselves with certain political or worldly powers, gaining access to the White House, perhaps? What is it going to be? How are we going to secure the future of the church? How are we going to build it up and see that it's victorious in the world? What are we trusting in? We will always be tempted to trust in things other than the very means of grace that God has appointed to secure His people and to build His church. That we will always be tempted, whether it's here in Denton or over in Dubai or even in the least reached places of the world, to think, no, 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 we've got to reach as many people as we can, as fast as we can, by any means possible. And that vision, as well-intentioned as it may be, Will, inev will inevitably force us to turn away from a whole portion of God's Word and God's wisdom and turn instead to worldly practices and worldly wisdom. And the church has been ravaged as a result, filled with nominal Christians that is in name only, of a witness to the gospel that is really no gospel at all, and of deceiving many in believing that they are, in fact, what they may not really be. Because you show up and you serve and you tithe a little money, but there's no gospel there. 
it is really easy to build a crowd without the gospel. But as we see in Jesus' own ministry, the crowd doesn't really always want Jesus. They love lots of heaven. Oh yeah, give me a lot of that good stuff. But do you want Jesus? Do you want to submit to him as king? Confess with your mouth that he's Lord. Submit your life to him. Entrust all of your life to him in such a way that this is the one who has my ultimate good in mind. That this is the only way by which I am able to have my sins forgiven, my life transformed, and my eternity secured is in Christ alone. Do I trust that? Or do I think that Christ is just really a good teacher that can give me a better marriage and give me better finances, give me a better whatever? The crowd loves the goodies of God. But the crowd will often, as we see with Christ, gladly take the goodies and reject God. What are we offering? This is why Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 3 to church leaders is so important. He says, you've got to be careful with what you're building on. What are you building? Are you building on personality? Are you building according to worldly wisdom? Are you building the church in a way that all of your pagan neighbors go, yeah, we like them. We want to go to that church. Paul says that the foundation upon which we are to build is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is precious stones. Everything else is wood, hay, and stubble. And there's going to come a day when our work, that our gospel work and our ministries in the church, will, we will stand before Christ and it will be burned up and only that which endures the fire, Paul says, will last. Only those things that are built on the gospel of Jesus Christ will last. And so we have to constantly take inventory as a church and as leaders. Is our church, are we relying on pragmatism? Are we thinking something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ can build our church and make us holy and happy? Or are we building on Jesus? This was a temptation for me this last week. This friend of ours, church down the road, is about to enter a new building. And I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be in a new building? Wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit more room for our children's ministry? Wouldn't it be nice to have fresh paint on the walls? Wouldn't it be nice to have our own space where you put our own stuff up? We're not sharing with two other churches. Wouldn't it be nice? And my imagination can run away with that. And it's amazing. I was caught thinking how gospelless my thinking was. If only we just had a building. <laughs> As if Christ's church has ever needed a building. Got a roof over our head, keep the rain off, God's people gathered around God's word. That's what we need. Oh, but we're just constantly tempted to think that it's the gospel plus a little bit of something else that'll really make this whole thing work. That'll really unlock the magic fruit box in the ministry of our church. And it's a lie. The foundation for our church must be Jesus Christ, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And that means, just as we see in Jesus' day, that it will more likely thin a crowd than it will build a crowd. And we need to be thinking more carefully about what success looks like and what we think works in ministry and whether just because something works, is it true? Because our day is no different than Jesus' day. And the same culture that will sing Hosanna for us because we think that we can give them goodies will turn around and say crucify them, just as they did our Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in God's Word. We don't trust in worldly supports and worldly wisdom. And we do this as well as individual believers. And so I wonder, what is it that you are trusting in other than God's appointed means of grace 
the reading and singing and praying and preaching of his word, the gathering of his saints, of prayer and of fellowship, and of, and of enjoying the Lord's Supper together, and all of these appointed means of grace, what are you trusting in to be holy and happy? A little bit more money? A little bit more job security? Maybe the better way to ask that question is, what is it when it's not given to you or taken away from you leads you to despair or grow discouraged? It might be in those things that you're trusting. Trust. Do not trust in substitute saviors. Don't trust in worldly supports. Every worldly support, unsupported by God will fail. Your own heart and your own flesh will fail. But as the psalmist said, Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you believe that? In all of your youth, youthful strength and in all of your wisdom and in all of your planning, and all of your backup plans, to your backup plans. Do you think even if every ounce of this fails, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? Do you believe that? That is what God is calling Judah to believe. Your lot is not with Moab. You're going to have to trust me. And even though everything around you seems to be failing, I will not fail you. My promises are firm. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 5 of verse 16. Chapter 16, rather. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see Moab's position. It says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, that is to Judah. Send them tribute from Selah. By way of the desert to the mount of the daughters of Zion, because we are drowning here. Verse 2, we're like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. Any of you found as you've walked through a park or along the sidewalk, you find a little baby bird that's fallen out of a nest, just laying there helpless, flailing around. Well, he says, that's what the whole nation is like. And then you notice, that's what the daughters of Moab are like. At the fords of Arnon, they've gone as far as they can go. They can't go any further. There's no men around because they've been slaughtered by the invading army. And so you have the weakest of the kingdom that are gathered and huddled and seeking refuge. This is their situation. And so in verses 3 through the first half of verse 4, this is the plea that they offer to Judah. Give counsel and grant justice, they say. They're saying, listen, you can't be neutral. Don't be apathetic. Take action on behalf of the one who needs to be delivered. We need to be delivered. They say, make your shade like a night at the height of the noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. But the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you and be a, a shelter to them. They're saying, this would have been a common illustration and the Middle East at the time, noonday sun is bearing down and it's hot. Remember, there's no water, there's no food, they're completely parched and they are getting beat down and destroyed by the sun and they're going, we just need some shade. Going, will you be our shade? Will you be our shelter? Will you protect us from the heat of what's coming our way? That's why they use that word twice, once in verse 3, once in verse 4. Will you be our shelter? They're pleading to Judah. Let us come in. Let us dwell with you. Protect us. But then we get God's response in the second half of verse 4 and, the, and then in verse 5. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot is vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness. In the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So I'm talking about King David. King David has come and gone 300 years earlier. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Moab's hope, their only hope is Judah's hope. It's in a promised king 
in a Messiah. The one whom Isaiah has been painting a portrait of now for the first 12, 13 verse, or chapters of Isaiah. That he is one that will be born of a virgin and have lots of wonderful titles. Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, that He will have a government that is established forever and He will rule in justice and righteousness. In fact, that language there at the end of verse 5, justice and righteousness, oh, those are some of Isaiah's favorites. He's talking about the perfection of God's rule on the earth. It will be marked and characterized no longer by enmity, no longer by war. It will be marked and characterized by peace and of justice, and of righteousness. And so the bride is saying, come to Moab. Christ is saying, come, come, just as they're saying to the nations in Isaiah chapter 2. Look at this here. What we see here is another prophecy concerning the same vision that Isaiah saw, the word that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 2. That it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. The mountains are speaking of the nations. The hills are speaking of the high places. That is all of the false worship in the land. And the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion, will raise up and be higher and dominate and cast its shade over everything else. Jesus uses a similar image speaking of a tree that will come from a mustard seed. Don't underestimate that mustard seed. It's going to grow into a tree that will be bigger than every other tree. And he's using language from Daniel when he does that the kingdom of God is going to be bigger and greater, more powerful than every kingdom and of all the kingdoms put together. Same language here. The mountain is higher than any other mountain. And look at this. All the nations shall flow to it. It's flowing upwards. It's supernatural. Who can do this? Only God can do this. And how does he do it? He does it by the declaration of his word from the mountain. See that at the end of verse 3? From Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, here it is in Isaiah 16. Listen to the word of the Lord. There's a king that is going to be established, and there's only one way that you will enter this assembly. Contrary to Deuteronomy 23, there's only one way that you can be counted among our number, and that is that you will submit to the messianic king. Because the last time we brought you in here and you didn't, that led to a whole host of mess. You've got to submit to Christ. Moab's hope, their only hope, is Israel's hope. That they, that Isaiah is calling Moab to join the nations that are flowing up in response to God's word to Mount Zion. But the only way that you're going to get to Zion is going to be by trusting the word of God and through the one who will sit on the throne. That throne, however, as we find later on in the Bible, that crown isn't going to come through the Messiah coming into the world and dominating through military force all of his enemies. It's going to be him coming in humility. It's going to be him taking, not first a crown, but a cross. This is what has been ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. Do you remember what the temptation was that Satan gave to Jesus in the wilderness? He took him up to the highest point, the Temple Mount, and he said, I want you to look out there. And I want you to look at all of the kingdoms. They can be yours, and I can give them to you. I'm the one that can give you the crown. All you got to do is forego this painful mission that the Father has sent you to accomplish and bow down to me. The lie is that there can be a kingdom without a cross. Christ goes back to God's word, throws it back in Satan's face, quotes Deuteronomy four times. How well do you know Deuteronomy? And in the face of temptation, stays the course. There will be no kingdom without a cross. There will be no exaltation apart from humiliation. And that's what we see. And so I, 
Isaiah is calling not only for Moab, but for Judah to trust in the one who is going to be established on this throne, and this one who is going to come as the very fulfillment of their own law, of the one who is going to die in the place of all who would trust in him. They will be the ones who will gather to Zion according to his word. But it will not happen apart from trusting in him. Did I lose it? We don't need a building, we need mics to build our church. So we don't trust in substitute saviors. We trust in God's king. And Isaiah's message to Judah and to Moab is God's message to us. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Isaiah's message is a message to you. Flee God's wrath by fleeing to God's Son. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that this is the way that every single one of us have become Christians. This is what marks the church. He writes, oh, I'm so happy to hear about you and of how you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Who is Jesus delivering us from? From God. Your greatest enemy is not Ultimately, sin, it is not ultimately Satan. Your greatest enemy is God. And the only way that you'll find safety and security for eternity is to trust in God to save you from God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he's done for all who will turn and trust in him. He delivers us from the wrath to come. He becomes our shelter. He becomes our shade. But there's only one way in. And it's by faith alone in the shed blood of Christ. Trust in Christ. But we're going to see a third point here. In verses 6 through 12. What is Moab going to do? How are they going to respond? All of us, some of us at least, We've had stubborn friends or we've had stubborn family that no matter how much their life falls apart, no matter how much pain God and his providence brings in, they continue to resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want nothing to do with it. And some of them will take it all the way to their deathbed in a hard-hearted, hard-headed resistance against the word of God and the grace of God in Christ. And that's what we see with Moab. They've got no recourse. They've got no other options. Trust in the king of Zion. Yeah, I don't think we're going to do that. We're better off on our own. And so Isaiah says, along with the congregation in Judah, we have heard of the pride of Moab. Oh, how proud he is. Of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, of his idle boasting, he is not right. All that wealth and all that power has been stripped in one night. We saw at the very beginning of chapter 15, Moab is undone. Yet even in being undone, they will not trust in the Davidic king. I will not submit to that throne. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab and let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth. Raisin cakes were a chief export of Moab. It's just saying that that which was once your prosperity and your profit has been utterly undone. You've got nothing left to host in or to trust in, and yet you are still boasting. Where is their pride found? Well, we see the clue in verse 12. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, High place is Old Testament language for the worship of idols. When he comes to his sanctuary, not the Lord's sanctuary, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. 
I'd much rather throw my lot in with our gods and my own understanding and my own wisdom than to submit to that Davidic throne and the one who will reign in righteousness and justice. Appreciate the offer. I know my life's fallen apart. You would think that if I ever had a clue, this would be it. But I'm just going to turn back around and I'm just going to keep on doing more of what I've always done. Maybe it'll work out a little differently this time. You ever known anybody like that? This is Moab's pride. And it's all rooted in Moab's worship. And it leads ultimately to Moab's destruction. Here in verse 8 and following, they're pictured as once being a lush vine. And now it's being totally destroyed. The fields of Heshbon languish. The vine of Sibmah, the lords of the nations, have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. But now all of that has been undone. And in verse 9, look at Isaiah's response. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer. For the vine of Sibma, I drench you with my tears. Look at his response continuing in verse 11. My inner parts, my bowels, I've got a pit in my stomach, moaning like a liar for Moab in my innermost self for Kir Haraseth. How does this section apply to us? When we consider Moab's pride in verses 6 and 7 and 12, what we need to do is to consider first and foremost Christ's humility. How contrary is Christ to Moab? How contrary is this one who has been exalted to his throne, this one to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess as Lord? How contrary is he to what Moab had experienced. This was the promise in verse 5, and yet still they would not turn. The Bible says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, that is, shared the very essence of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, to be grasped. He didn't have to gain it, he didn't need it, he already owned it. All that glory belonged to him, and yet he emptied himself, and he humbled himself to the point becoming a servant that is lower than the lowest, even to the point of death on a cross. This is the humility of the king. And it's only on the basis of that humility that God has super exalted him and given him the name which is now above all names. The pattern of Moab is completely contrary to the pattern of Christ. I wonder if perhaps there are times when our own heart is contrary to the pattern of Christ. I wonder if when we consider people in our own lives who continue, despite all of the wreckage in their own life, continue to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, continue to be hostile against the gospel, continue to speak ill of God and of the gospel, and of Jesus, and of the church. Those difficult relationships. Do we grow haughty toward them? When hard things come as a consequence of their own rebellion, do you think, ah, got what they deserved? When we look at our own culture, do we look around at a culture of death through abortion when we, when we look at our own culture and we see politicians that are not only prescribing but, but celebrating the mass murder of the unborn, when we, when we look at our own culture continually calling that which is good evil and that which is evil good, when we consider all of these things, do we go, what a bunch of idiots. Well, they're going to get theirs. Or do we respond like Isaiah? Isaiah knew how God's power and grace can turn enemies into friends. That was his own testimony. Remember all the way back in Isaiah 6, he was confronted with the holy, holy, holy God. 
Remember what he said, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. I've got no claim on you, I deserve nothing but wrath, nothing but judgment, you are holy, I am sinful, I'm as good as dead. And yet God in his grace in an act of atonement took a coal from the altar, presumably an altar of the, where burnt offering would be given, touched his lips, made atonement, and consecrated his lips no longer for cursing God, but for proclaiming God and of the gospel. If you're here today and you're a Christian, Isaiah's testimony is your testimony. That while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And only one who has been moved by that kind of grace and that kind of forgiveness, and who knows that kind of power to change and transform enemies into friends, slaves into sons, will weep over the sin of his neighbors and not grow haughty and proud and look down on it. Will weep and long for their turning. Will weep and long to see them come to a point of no longer trusting in themselves, but of trusting in Christ. That we would not be like that Pharisee on the Temple Mount going, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like those guys. I'm so glad I'm not like those politicians. I'm so glad I'm not like those in that political party. I'm so glad I'm not like those people in Planned Parenthood. I'm so glad I'm not like any of those. I'm so glad I'm not like my neighbor, those drunkards or those whatever. I'm so glad I'm not like them is to say, apart from the grace of God, there's nothing different in me from them. Their destiny is my destiny had it not been for God's gracious intervention through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Who are we to boast except in anything but the cross of Christ? Not our own righteousness, not our politics, not any of those things. We boast in Christ. Everything else is humility. I weep with the weeping of Jazer. By the way, that's the same spirit that Christ had. You remember as he looks over Jerusalem, right after triumphal entry, he's about to re-enter and he's about to be murdered. See it in Luke 19. You can see it elsewhere in uh, Matthew 23. And he looks out and he weeps over the spiritual condition of those who are about to reject his gospel, and we're about to put him to death. He weeps over them. He doesn't stand up on the temple mount. He doesn't stand up on the mountain, look down and go, what a bunch of unregenerate fools. He goes, oh, if I could just take your children. Like, like a mama bird, I want to I bring them in. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of Isaiah. And that was the heart of Paul when he writes Romans 9. He says, I consider my countrymen according to the flesh, the very ones that are persecuting him in that very moment and that have put him in the jail that he's writing from. I consider them who hate me, that hate my gospel, my countrymen according to the flesh, who were once blind as I was blind, rejecting the gospel as I rejected the gospel. And I, oh, that I would be able to one to make the atonement for them, that they would be in my place and I would be in theirs. That's compassion. And that's the only kind of compassion that can come when you've been utterly, totally, completely transformed by the grace of God in Christ. When you're no longer leaning on your own righteousness, when you're no longer establishing righteousness according to the law, when you're no longer measuring yourself against other people, when all you have is Christ and his righteousness, it utterly transforms the way that we relate to everybody else around us, even those who hate us. Oh, how can Jesus get away with saying, bless your enemies? He said, I'll give you the power to do that. That's what Isaiah does. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did. And it's what we do. Oh, brothers and sisters, we cannot ever be a haughty church. With every word that comes out of our mouth, with every word that we type on Facebook or Twitter, with everything that we speak, is it filled with haughtiness or does it sound like Isaiah? Oh, I weep for my neighbor. I mourn for our nation. I mourn for this world. Oh, that they would know Christ. 
Is that our heart? Or do we go, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I had better upbringing. Thank God I had a better schooling. Thank God I'm whatever. May it never be that I would boast in anything except for Christ, for the cross of Christ. Paul, Galatians 6. May that be true of us as well. There's no haughtiness for those who have been saved by grace alone. That we are moved by the very same compassion to the lost that God has shown toward us, and that's what we see exhibited here. And we do so finally in in verses 13 and 14 by trusting in God's word because it's true. This is the word of the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past, but now the Lord has spoken, saying in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all of his great multitude and those who will remain very few and very feeble. He says, Judah, let me tell you what, the, what Moab is going to look like in a few years. Compared to the glory of God, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. Which glory are you going to trust in? Compared to the power of God, the power of Moab will become very few and very feeble. Whose power are you going to trust in? And the same question is for us today. Are we going to be enticed by the glory of the world and of all of its promises? Or are we going to be constrained and compelled by the glory of God in Christ? Are we going to trust in the powers of this world, political power and financial power of knowing the right people and having the right jobs and voting the right way and living in the right neighborhoods and getting the right education? Or are we going to hope in the power of Christ? All that is in the world is passing away. It's not going to endure. Christ and his gospel and his people are forever. What are you trusting in? Are you tempted to trust in substitute saviors? Are you tempted to trust in your own wisdom as Moab did? Or are you trusting in God as king? And are you trusting in God's word? Are you able to stake your life on the word of God? On all of it? Are you able to say with Peter, amen, when he writes, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God, because all flesh is like grass, its glory like the flower of grass, So is Moab, so is everything else in this world. It's all like grass. The grass withers, the flower will fade, Moab's going down, the world's passing away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? All that we do as a church and the way that we walk on Monday morning is Christ our boast, and are we trusting in his word? May that be true of every one of us. Pray with me and we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper together.